and welcome to episode 145 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Gemma Ritchie, Beth Smith, Will Johnston, Jessica W, Paula Eddinger, Shane Ashwind, Amanda McCabe, Gary Steins, Amos Brigham, Melissa McCutcheon, Juliana, Amanda Walker, Lily Wilson, Jennifer Ann, Sharon Corcoran, Jeanette Burson, Forrest Rose and Sarah Gromley. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. You are so appreciated and I'm thankful for you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is Train to Busan. Train to Busan was released in 2016. It has 7.6 out of 10 on IMDb and 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Sukwu and his daughter are on a train to Busan. It's his daughter's birthday and they're on the way to see his estranged wife. However, the journey turns into a nightmare when they are trapped amidst a zombie outbreak in South Korea. If you've been around for a while, you know that I love, love, love a zombie movie. I just love them. And I don't think it takes that much to please me with a zombie film. I just really enjoy watching them. And this film was no different. In fact, it was much better than any zombie film that I've seen recently. It's so good. It's incredible. So I'm going to, like I did with the other film reviews that I've done recently, I'm just going to do like a, a, a tick list of the things that I really enjoyed, the things that I really liked, and things that I thought could have been a little bit better. So firstly... The little girl in this film is amazing. She is amazing. She's cute. She's clever. She's feisty. She's not helpless. She is everything that I want a kid actor in a movie to be. Do you know what? If she didn't get an Oscar for this. Okay, I say that. I know she didn't get an Oscar for this. But she should be massively commended for her performance in this. Her performance, particularly at the end of this film, is incredible. I loved her. And usually I'm a great proponent for just not allowing children in horror films ever because I find them frustrating and annoying. But she is neither of those things. She's a very good addition to this story. And her dad is the classic horror dickhead dad. That dad that we constantly say you need to A, listen to your kid, B, stop worrying about work, C, recognise that the things that are happening around you are actually happening. He's really unlikable from the very beginning and you think oh you've dedicated so much of your life to your work that you've forgotten about your family and they really set him up to have a brilliant story arc and and he's very well played as well like his his performance at the end is also brilliant and I think zombie films are great because you can you can put a lot of work into the zombies But you have to have characters that are realistic and likeable for a zombie movie to work. I think at some part, at some point as a viewer, you need to be able to see yourself in the film and be able to go, hey, these are real people reactions and this is how real people would respond. Like with most zombie films, we sort of start off with the beginning of the outbreak where we see I think it's a deer getting hit by a car and then it stands up and walks away. So you know that this disease this virus whatever it is can cross contaminate across species and you get these great glimpses of the zombies and of and how things are breaking down mostly through the little girl's eyes in the beginning and 
she just sort of she's shocked by them but seems to accept them and they haven't done massive cgi or masses of makeup with the zombies either i mean they are scary they are really really scary but as with lots of great zombie movies it becomes less about the zombies as time goes on and more about how the human beings in this situation react to what is happening around them and that's i think what makes it stand out you see very real reactions from very real people. Some people who you think, wow, you're amazing, you're really brave, you're a hero. And others who you think, I can't fucking wait for you to get eaten by a zombie. I cannot wait. There was something so clever as well about this film being set on a train. Like it it makes it so claustrophobic because they're stuck. They can't get out. There's nowhere to go. But it also opens up this weird world of endless possibilities with the story because you you're you have this whole new like microcosm of a world. You're not sort of running around a city. They don't have weapons. They don't have guns. They don't suddenly have access to all of these things they have to make do with what they have in the space that they have. And it was such a good idea to set it on a train. Like such a good idea because it also gives you a glimpse into these different characters and their relationships in a totally different context. And I think it would be it would be to- it would be remiss to talk about this film without mentioning the blue jacket man who is the hero of the piece and the best character in a zombie film that I've seen in a very long time. He is incredible. He is a credit to the writers. All he wants to do is look after his pregnant partner and his child. That's it. That's all he wants to do. And he has to, he just, just becomes a hero at the same time. I what a guy. I love him. And genuinely, to talk about bad points about this film, I don't really know that there were any. For me, who loves a zombie film, I thought it was something new and really interesting to add to the genre. It was clever. It was fast moving. It was witty and funny at times. Like there was also times when it was silly. I just, it was great. It was so good. The thing I will say is that it doesn't need a remake. Apparently they are making a remake. It doesn't, doesn't need it. Does not need a Hollywood remake. It's great as it is. And for me, it's absolutely a five star zombie film. So if you're into zombie films, this is definitely one to check out. And even if you're not that into zombie films, but you like a good horror thriller, this is still one to check out. It's very clever, very original and really gripping. Which brings us to our story this week. Now I need to give a massive shout out to Mysteries of the Unexplained podcast. They covered this story a few months ago and it really fascinated me. And I thought, what better time than now to talk about scary shit that happens underground. So let's get into it. Humans have long held a fascination with the unknown. We seek out bits of our planet that we don't understand and spread ourselves over them to try and absorb every microscopic speck of knowledge. It could be argued that our need to know comes from pure intellectual curiosity. But it also could be argued that our need to know comes from a deep desire to control. The more you know about something, the better chance you have of utilising it. We are desperate to know what secrets exist in space and what the depths of the ocean have in store for us. And we also want to know what treasures exist underground. 
In the 1800s, there was a mad scramble to create transport links that would make the movement of goods and people more efficient. And there was a particular drive to somehow link Boston and New York City. A reliable link between the two hubs would allow for far-reaching economical impact and the idea of building a railroad was settled upon. This was no easy feat, and the construction workers and architects came face to face with many geographical impediments, which would result in the construction lasting over 20 years. In the north of the state of Massachusetts towered the Hoosac Mountain Range, and this became one of the most formidable obstacles in the construction effort. There was no conceivable way to build around the mountain range, so it was decided that come hell or high water, a five-mile tunnel would be constructed through the mountains. There was no easy or slick way of doing this, however, and the tools available were limited. Black powder explosives were unpredictable at best and lacked the accuracy needed to ensure it was used safely. Pickaxes and the bare hands of hundreds of men were the next weapons of choice against the rocky outcrop. The going was tough and incredibly dangerous. Lives were lost when tunnels collapsed, whether killing men instantly or trapping them alive. Poor ventilation and the build-up of toxic fumes caused men to suffocate. But all the while they powered on, making slow and painful progress through the mountains. That was until 1865, when the invention of nitroglycerin meant that more aggressive progress could be made. The powerful explosive allowed for huge chunks of the mountain to be blown up and removed. But with this power came even deadlier risks. It wasn't long after its introduction that the first fatal accident occurred because of nitroglycerin. On the 20th of March 1865, a three-man crew were tasked with a detonation of dynamite to begin the next part of the excavation of the tunnels. Ned Brinkman and Billy Nash laid the dynamite, while it was the job of Ringo Kelly to detonate the explosives at the appropriate time. Timing was key in all of these missions, as detonating the explosives a second too early meant that the team wouldn't have the chance to get to safety and would therefore be in extreme danger. There was no way of accurately predicting how the explosion would occur and what the aftermath would be. Ringo Kelly detonated the dynamite too early and Brinkman and Nash did not have the time to make it to safety. They were killed instantly in an avalanche of falling rocks. Stories like this were not uncommon in the building trade, but Ringo Kelly simply couldn't get over what had happened. His behaviour completely changed, and he became anxious and frightened all of the time. He was once a strong and boisterous workman, and he was now a trembling wreck, virtually unable to enter the tunnels, and rambling incoherently about shadows and whispers. And then he disappeared completely. On the 30th of March, Kelly was found in the exact spot where Brinkman and Nash had died. He had been strangled to death. Deputy Sheriff Charles F. Gibson began to investigate, thinking that perhaps Kelly was murdered by a co-worker who wanted revenge for the death of Brinkman and Nash. 
but no one was ever charged, and there weren't even any viable suspects. The death of Kelly sent shockwaves through the workers. They had listened to him rant about whisperings and shadow people, and the rumours began to swirl that Kelly was indeed killed in revenge, but not by anyone living. The men began to hear cries from deep inside the tunnels, shrieks of terror and moans of pain that pierced the silence and lingered in the air. This was unlike any sounds they had heard in the tunnels before. And soon there was a mass walkout, and many men refused to enter the tunnel, prompting the construction company to enlist the help of both academics and clergymen to try and alleviate the mounting fears. A man named Paul Travers was one such expert who was drafted in to help solve the ever-growing mysteries of the tunnel. In September 1968, Travers wrote a letter to his sister in which he stated, The men constantly complain of hearing a man's voice cry out in agony and refuse to enter the great shaft after nightfall. Mr. Dunn has reassured them time and time again that the strange sound is nothing more than the wild winds sweeping down off the mountainside. Our work has slowed to the point where Mr. Dunn asked me to help him conduct an investigation into the matter. Travers was a mechanical engineer and had been a highly respected cavalry officer in the Union Army. Mr. Dunn, the foreman of the site, knew that the men not only knew who Travers was, but they would also respect the conclusions that he would draw. Dunn and Travers began their investigation by entering the tunnel at 9pm. And their conclusion was not what either of them had anticipated. In the darkness of the tunnels, they listened to the steady drip of the water that bounced off the walls. Their eyes never adjusted to the gloom, and their lamps did little to light the way, as the darkness seemed to hungrily consume any light it could. And then it started. A low moan echoed from some unknown nook. Both men stopped and listened. There it was again. Unmistakable. The moan of a man in pain, intensifying with each second and interspersed with sobs. Travers felt a cold sweat begin to form on his brow. He had heard this sound before, and it had haunted him ever since. He wrote in a letter to his sister. Last night, Mr. Dunn and I entered the Great Tunnel at exactly 9pm. We travelled about two miles into the shaft, and then stopped to listen. As we stood there in the cold silence, we both heard what truly sounded like a man groaning out in pain. As you know, I have heard this sound many times during the war. Yet, when we turned up the wicks on our lamps, there were no other human beings in the shaft except Mr. Dunn and myself. I'll admit, I haven't been this frightened since Shiloh. Mr. Dunn agreed that it wasn't the wind we heard. Perhaps Nash, or Brinkman, I wonder. The investigation had done nothing to alleviate the concerns of the workers, and the rumours continued. And a month later, another accident would compound the horrors of the tunnels. A build-up of gas caused an explosion that killed 13 men. Most were killed instantly, 
but a handful survived the initial blast, only to find themselves trapped deep underground in a pit that was rapidly filling with water. They built a makeshift raft to attempt to float, but a fire raged after the explosion that consumed all of the available oxygen, and the men perished. Except the people on the surface did not know this, and the search for the bodies was fruitless. In the weeks and months after, local people began to report that they had found bodies. Corpses washed out of the mountains and ended up in gullies and streams. But the people who reported them had strange stories to tell. They told of misty figures of men with lamps calling to them through the trees, leading them through the darkness to partially concealed remains. The figures would stand by the remains until the local person found them, and then the figure would dissipate. A rail worker, working a night shift, heard the distinctive trudge of boots on stone, and then turned to see a line of men making their way into the tunnel. They had an eerie, glowing quality, and he knew that no one was scheduled to be making their way into the tunnel, especially not a whole team of men. They trudged silently in a line with pickaxes over their shoulders, a single lantern lighting their way being held aloft by the man at the front. Their heads were bowed, and he couldn't see their faces. He watched as they began to be engulfed into the darkness of the hole, but decided that he needed to follow them. He had to understand why these men were there, and a tiny part of him realised that he needed to understand what it was that he was seeing. He followed the silent line of men deep into the tunnel and into a watery cavern. When he emerged in the cavern, the line of men had disappeared, but a noise began to rumble around him. A groan of pain coincided with him spotting something floating in the water. The bloated corpse of a young man. The noise that began as a rolling groan grew into an unbearable human shriek of agony. He panicked and covered his ears and closed his eyes, desperate to block out the horror that he was seeing and hearing. Suddenly the noises stopped, and when he opened his eyes, the body was gone. When the body of the last of the 13 missing men was found and given a decent burial, the apparitions of the bodies stopped. But the shrieking and the groans of pain continued to plague the construction workers. In June 1872, Superintendent J. Orr McKinstray and Dr. C.J. Owens came to the Hoosack Tunnel in order to put an end once and for all to the rumours that circled the mountains. The progress was slow already and was being rendered even more difficult because of the fears of the workers. Like the experts that had gone before them, Owens and McKinstray intended to ascertain the source of the shrieks and wails that came from the tunnels. Their experience was recorded in a Michigan newspaper. On the night of June 25th, 1872, James McKinstray and I entered the Great Excavation at precisely 11.30pm. We had travelled about two full miles into the shaft when we finally halted to rest. Except for the dim, smoky light cast by our lamps, the place was as cold and dark as a tomb. James and I stood there talking for a minute or two, 
and were just about to turn back, when suddenly I heard a strange, mournful sound. It was just as if someone, or something, was suffering great pain. The next thing I saw was a dim light coming along the tunnel from a westerly direction. At first I believed it was probably a workman with a lantern, yet as the light grew closer, it took on a strange blue colour and appeared to change shape almost into the form of a human being without a head. The light seemed to be floating along about a foot or two above the tunnel floor. In the next instant, it felt as if the temperature had suddenly dropped and a cold icy chill ran up and down my spine. The headless form came so close that I could have reached out and touched it, but I was too terrified to move. For what seemed like an eternity, McKinstray and I stood there, gaping at the headless thing. The blue light remained motionless for a few seconds, as if it were actually looking at us over, then floated off towards the east end of the shaft and vanished into thin air. I am, above all, a realist, nor am I prone to repeating gossip and wild tales that defy a reasonable explanation. However, in all truth I cannot deny what James McKinstray and I witnessed with our own eyes. Again, the fears of the workers seemed to only have been compounded. The mysterious wails and moans weren't solved and two more experts had been faced with something that made them question their own beliefs. The tunnel continued to impact the workers, but it also impacted the people in the surrounding communities. Local hunter Frank Webster disappeared for three days and was found on the banks of a river badly beaten with an extraordinary tale to tell. He claimed that while hunting, he had heard the voices calling him towards the caves. When he went to investigate, he saw multiple men working in the caves. All were striking rocks with their pickaxes, but there was no sound. The scene was so incongruous with the silence that it became deafening and Webster began to panic. Then he remembered feeling a smack on his head. Webster claimed that his rifle was wrestled from his hand by an unseen force and he was beaten with it and his injuries were consistent with an attack. Locals and workers continued to report balls of light being seen in and around the tunnels and the cave systems. On the 9th of February 1875, the first train travelled safely through the Hoosack Tunnel. It had taken 25 years to complete and 200 men lost their lives. But the tragedies of the Hoosack Tunnel do not end there. In 1875, a man named Harlan Mulvaney was delivering timber to the tunnel on a wagon. He saluted to the other workers and then entered the tunnel as per usual. From inside the tunnel came the sound of his screams and the frantic whinnying of the horses and the wagon burst back out through the tunnel opening, the horses at full gallop, snorting and nostrils flaring in fear and Mulvaney was standing in the wagon, pale-faced and wide-eyed with terror, whipping the horses frantically to get away as quickly as possible. Something had terrified him. The wagon and the horses were found three days later, three miles away, and Mulvaney was never seen again. 
In the 1970s, local and national newspapers printed the stories of the hauntings of the Hoosac Tunnel, and there was a renewed interest in investigating the tunnel. Bernard Hostaba decided to walk the five miles of the tunnel to prove that it was not haunted. He was never seen again. A worker named Joseph Impoco was busy repairing the railroad when he heard a voice clearly say, Run, Joe, run! Thinking he was imagining things, Impoco ignored the voice and then was violently shoved in the chest, falling backwards from the tracks and landing onto his back in the dirt. Just as the number 60 train hurtled around the corner at a much higher speed than usual, and this wouldn't be the last time Impoco would hear the voice. Six weeks later, he was using a crowbar to prise freight cars from a frozen track, when again he heard the voice say, Joe, Joe, drop it, Joe. He immediately dropped the bar, and as he did so, there was a loud crack, and the bar flew across the tracks and smashed into a wall. It had been shocked by 11,000 volts from a short-circuited overhead power line. The Hoosac Tunnel was built by men who lived with the constant knowledge that their job could kill them at any point. The tunnels were unstable and they worked with tools and in an environment that was unpredictable at best. Alongside the logical and legitimate fears of the practicalities of the environment, there was also the fear of the unknown and the fear of what lurked under the ground and what it was capable of. So I've no real I've no real fear of the underground or I don't really have claustrophobia or anything like that. But I would not be caught dead. Spelunk is that what they call it? Spelunking? Or you know, hanging around in caves or anything like that? No, I've seen the descent. I know what happens. You fall down a shaft and then you get eaten alive by some unknown creature. No way, not happening. And I, I, I just, when with stories like this, I think about the environment that these men were working in. It was so dark. It was, it's a darkness that your eyes never adjust to because there is no natural light. Like there was often a lack of oxygen. There was buildup of toxic gases and no, noxious fumes. They were totally isolated under the ground. Like this, they lived with this constant fear of the unknown and what lives underground and constantly on high alert that something might go wrong and stuff did go wrong all of the time. It was just such an inhospitable environment for them to be working in and to be working with just blowing things up and hoping that people wouldn't die. Like that was basically what they were doing. If there was ever going to be weird hauntings or apparitions or anything along those lines, this place would be it. And I think a combination of these men being constantly terrified would cause them to see these things like psychologically. But I also think if you were a believer in things that were spiritual and and the ability to come back and people have an unfinished business, this would be the place where people would be. So much tension, so much hard work, so much trauma that all happened in this tiny suffocating space. But there was something else about this story that really struck me. And I guess I didn't really I didn't really think about it until literally as I was reading it back. I generally write notes about the stuff that I want to make a comment on. And this is something I didn't write a note on. But there are old 
stories of fairies and fairies being creatures that call your name in the woods, lure you into danger and do horrible things to you. And that's a pretty common trope for fairy lore. And this, I mean, there's also a possibility that this hunter that was lost out in the forest, this Frank Webster man, that he drank too much, disappeared for three days and then needed a story and piggybacked off off of all of the ghost stories that were hanging around at the time. But it sounds like very much like fairy lore. He was called away and then injured, attacked, lured into the underground by these creatures. And when we think about fairy lore, we often think of little little flying things. But often in Irish fairy lore, fairies were seen as these glowing human-sized figures, which is what Owens and McKinstry saw, which was a glowing, a glowing figure that came from inside of the caves. And in Irish fairy lore, these fairies live fairies live under mountains they live underground they live under rocky outcrops same in Iceland with their elven elvic elven it's elven with their lore about elves maybe that's a better way to put it they live in rocky outcrops so maybe it's not just maybe it's not just ghosts that's haunting the Hoosack Tunnel maybe it's fairies too you know or maybe it's all psychological who knows do let me know what you think. Do you think that this is all psychological? These men were living in fear. Young men were dying around them. They uh, were creating these apparitions, these entities from their own psychological trauma. Was the Hoosack Tunnel, is the Hoosack Tunnel haunted by these spirits, the, these lives that were lost seemingly so needlessly? Or is it a combination of all of these things, including fairy lore? with people being led away by voices, people seeing glowing lights and these humanoid glowing figures that are appearing from underneath the mountain. Oh, I just love this story so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you would like to send in your own spooky story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And on that note, I shall see you next week. <laughs>